0: for the Tech Mobility Show with Ken Chester. Ken is a veteran journalist who doesn't always color between the lines. So, here he is, the host with the electrified personality, Ken Chester.
1: Real facts, real opinions, real talk. This is the Tech Mobility Show, America's program for news, information, and perspective at the intersection of mobility and technology. I'm Ken Chester, and let's get started. On the docket. My review of the all-new Acura Integra, and don't let the old name fool you, this car's got skills. I'm also talking about low-power FM, FM radio. If you did not know, it's a thing, and I explain. And then finally, the railroad industry's mainline blues. I guess they're choosing to ignore their recent history at their own peril, and I'll explain. To join the conversation, be it to ask a question, share an opinion, or even suggest an idea for future discussion, call or text the Tech Mobility hotline, that number, 872-222-9793, or you can email the show, talk at techmobility.show, and that's talk at techmobility.show. Also, I'm inviting you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm producing a number of video shorts that I post about each week on different topics discussed here on the program. And I want to reach a 1,000 subscribers by the end of the year, and I need your help. That's www.youtube.com backslash at the Tech Mobility Show. Thank you so much. From the Tech Mobility News Desk, do you really want, do you really need another computer screen in your car? what you're seeing and I'm sure you've seen the prototypes on TV of the dashboard long and wide screens in fact the Mercedes-Benz their new electric vehicles have three screens that take up all of the dashboard from the driver's side all the way over the passenger side including the center console BMW has a different approach and honestly I like where they're going with this I think it's going to be genius now I will talk about in a later show their new cl- what they call their new class next generation electric vehicle where BMW basically has chosen to go back to basics. Part of that is what they call the BMW Panoramic Vision Display. And it uses head-up display technology to transform the windshield into a secondary display. Now, before you think that we're talking about a windshield full of data, Let me clarify. You're still going to have your head-up display in front of you. But where the BMW comes in, and I think this is really cool, it's going to be a band at the bottom of the inside of the windshield with various information. Not quite a ticker tape, but your information is going to be there. Number one, it improves visibility because now you're not looking down at something, you're looking out. So much like the head-up display, that information will be available to you in your line of sight while creating a secondary display. It does not move it to the dash and you will still have the ability to have a optional dashboard mounted display, but it's not gonna have all that information on it. It will have less. And I think where they're going is gonna be an awesome deal. Because when it comes to in-car digital displays, BMW thinks that more isn't necessarily better. And they wanna, Steer folks towards a less distracting digital experience in its future electric vehicles, according to Stephen Durach, BMW, senior, BMW Group senior vice president for connected company development. He said, "Your car is your last private space. Sitting in front of a wall of screens is not a nice customer experience." So BMW is ditching its dashboard riding slabs of curved glass for a less intrusive driver experience in its new class platform EVs that arrive mid-decade. They took a look at what Mercedes was doing and they immediately saw the limitation of the bigger and bigger displays. Cadillac's doing it too. Everybody thinks that's the way to go. I remember when I first saw an application of a full dashboard screen and it was actually... The Ford Motor Company, 20 years ago, about 23 years ago, in fact, where the display covered the entire dashboard from driver all the way over the passenger. And that was in 2000, 2001. Yeah, it was a bit much then, still a bit much now. While BMW's redefined user experience doesn't necessarily reduce the number of screens in the vehicle, it sandboxes content to individual displays to minimize driver distraction. Interaction is handled via steering wheel control and voice commands. We want to reduce the redundancy. And this is John Fryer said. He's the vice president of user experience for BMW. We don't want to have information in all places in parallel. We want to focus on the driver. And that's so BMW. And I have no problem with that, really. Because, I mean, I... I am torn with these larger and larger infotainment displays that are now the size of a small um, uh, you know, digital screen, TV screen. I mean, they're getting to be that size. They're almost laptop size turned on its side. I'm not sure that necessarily that's the best idea all the time. I would like a larger screen. Do I need it to be a foot to 14 inches long, though, and six to eight inches wide? Not necessarily. That might be a bit much. Or do I want to go the Mercedes route where I have screens upon screens? Or the Cadillac route where I have screen? No, thank you. I mean, I can be overwhelmed. And remember, people, all that screen time ain't one way. They're going to try to monetize that, meaning they're going to be in your face with some ads in the years to come. Going the BMW route, that's less of an issue, and I'm all for it current head-up displays project a small field of view expanding the field of view can create a more immersive experience and deliver critical driving information in the driver's natural line of sight allowing them to keep their eyes on the road BMW's new design showcases a head-up display technology that like I said transforms the windshield it's Bosch supplied and the display is tucked back far like we said And it projects the contents from its three screens across the lower section of the windscreen or the windshield the ultra-wide display sits in the driver's line of sight but is low enough not to obstruct the view of the road the panoramic vision display uses what they call a high contrast matrix backlight technology and it's several times stronger than any display that's normally used in a car The display will deliver driving information, navigation prompts and incoming notifications, such as phone calls. Now in pillar to pillar screen concepts, and we've talked about this, there's so much real estate that automakers feel compelled to fill it. We're trying to reduce the information. It's BMW talking to really meaningful things and stay as focused as possible. As a result, vehicle speed is displayed as a number with none of the graphics and animations that typically clutter the instrument cluster. Imagine that. Information you can use in a way that makes sense that doesn't overwhelm the driver. I'm all for that. All for that. A third screen. I'm sorry, let me back up. That panoramic screen is parallelogram shaped touchscreen within reach of the driver and front passenger. The centrally located OLED display is oriented to view infotainment, gaming and navigation. A third screen That optional 3d head up display activated above the steering wheel is limited to navigation and assisted driving information. I'm all for all of that. Now BMW started thinking about this about 10 years ago and development of the windshield based display concept officially began four years ago. And initially there was skepticism and technological challenges. One that you might not have thought of at first and it required the movement of where the air vents sit. Requiring relocation of the HVAC and other components because you got to defrost the inside of the window which typically requires vents at the bottom of the window blowing air on the window. Well, with the display, that ain't going to work. So they had to reimagine that. And it should be interesting to find out Just how BMW accomplished that. I'm going to be curious to see. That should be interesting. And more importantly, when I'm thinking about that, does that affect the ability of like defrosting and air conditioning and everything? Because when you move one thing, something else happens. So the question is, do I lose anything by moving those vents around? We will see. Because they're expecting to put the nuke. Vehicles based on that new class foundation, um, in production middle part of this decade, which means in about a couple of years, this stuff's coming and it ought to be pretty cool. In fact, they're betting that the minute their minimalist concept will be the new normal, kind of Scandinavian, actually. Because if you look at Volvo or those, you kind of go that way, so it could be kind of cool and actually kind of modern. They actually expect that the center console-based screens that require the drivers to look away from the road will soon be history because they don't think that the regulators will go for that. The Acura Integra is back. I get to drive one. You're listening to the Tech Mobility Show.
0: Buying a car means asking yourself a lot of important questions. But the way we see it, there's really only one question that matters. The one we ask ourselves again and again when we were designing the 1990 Acura Integra. Is it a joy to drive?
1: still answer that question after 23 years and a return? Actually, more than that, 33 years. Yeah, I can answer it. Short answer. Yes, it is. The Acura Integra was introduced as a three-door liftback in the United States for the new upscale nameplate from Honda in 1985. It was one of the launch models for the brand along with the Acura Legend. The 1995-2001 to 2001 Integra Type R is widely regarded for its handling and performance, considered by many as one of the best front-wheel drive cars of all time. The Integra was replaced in the North American lineup by the RSX 2001 to 2006 and the ILX from 2012 to 2022. For the 2023 model year, the Integra returns as one of the brand's most iconic nameplates to the Acura lineup bringing a premium driving experience and a sleek liftback design to a new generation of enthusiast drivers. A premium sport compact inspired by fun-to-drive spirit of previous Integras, the all-new Integra is a new performance gateway to the Acura brand, delivering a class-leading driving dynamics and engaging performance. This is Topic A. and While it has the seat lines of a four-door sedan, the Integra is actually a five-door liftback offering a large and flexible cargo area, superior seat legroom, and a sporty stance. The fifth generation 2023 Acura Integra is available in three models. The base model is powered by a first-ever turbocharged 1.5-liter VTEC four-cylinder gasoline prime mover that produces 200 horsepower and 192 foot-pounds of torque. Performance oriented Integra Type S, and that's a 2024 availability, by the way, is equipped with a turbocharged two liter four cylinder gasoline engine, and it makes 320 horsepower and 310 foot pounds of torque. Torque has communicated the front wheels via a six speed manual gearbox. Base models also have the option of a continuously variable automatic transmission with paddle shifters. EPA fuel economy is 30 city, 37 highway for the CVT automatic. 26-city, 36-highway for the six-speed manual, and 21-city, 28-highway for the 2024 Integra Type S. Cargo capacity is 24.3 cubic feet. Sporty and personal, Integra's distinctive driver-focused interior design creates distinct environments for the driver and passenger. Standard features include a 10.2-inch accurate Precision Cockpit Digital Gauge Display, an Apple CarPlay, Car and Android Auto Compatibility. a Wireless smartphone charger, a head-up display, and a 530-watt 16-speaker ELS Studio 3D Premium Audio System custom-tailored for Integra's unique listening environment are also available. Here's what I liked about the vehicle. <laughs> First of all, Welcome back, Integra. It's like connecting with a kid in the neighborhood from back in the day that's all grown up now. The Integra has that kind of vibe, sophisticated and refined, like a freshly minted Ivy League graduate. The Integra is fast, responsive, and fun. And what we're talking about is what I consider to be precision-controlled hardware with lightning quick response. There are four driving modes. As always, these days it seems: comfort, normal, sport and that's kind of the dynamic mode, and you want to try that, and a separate individual setting. The individual setting allows the driver to drill down and set certain performance parameters separately, like engine, steering, and suspension between the other three drive settings. Well, low, wide, and secure, this Integra is very easy to drive, and in fact, is driver-inspiring at speed. One word, people. fog lights! Because, you know, I like my fog lights. So, you know, it's great when I get them. So I'm happy about that. Inside the passenger cabin, it has room for four adults. Displays, controls, and switchgear are straightforward and easy to use. The head-up display found on the A-Spec models is a plus. Rear seat passengers enjoy a center armrest with dual cup holders. USB and C ports are available both front and rear. Here's what I didn't like about the vehicle. The rear slope of the rear window, because it is a liftback, requires a rear wiper. I know they like the design. It really does look like a sedan, but practicality, Acura, you need a wiper for that window, please. They've equipped it with heated seats, but not a heated steering wheel. Come on. no. St- I want a heated steering wheel. Just, It's a thing. Just roll with me here. There's no, there's no spare tire, and this is an ongoing pet peeve I have. I don't know if these are self-sealing, puncture-resistant, run-flats. It was not clear on what I'm riding on here, and that is a concern of mine because I want to know. I really do because, honestly, um, that standard tire repair kit in the cargo area is not inspiring at all, none. And while the split folding rear seat does fold flat with the cargo floor, the cargo hatch requires a major lift over since the cargo floor is not flush with the bottom of the lift back opening, which means if you're trying to lift stuff in and slide it, not so much, you gotta lift it up and over. And that kind of reduces the benefit of the lift back to me, to some regard. Here's the bottom line. Now built in Marysville, Ohio, by Honda Research and Manufacturing, The return of the Acura Integra is much like connecting with a good friend, only better. Sport mode is way fun, and the A-spec models are way more than just good looks. Acura seems to have held the line on pricing too. And as one of the last manual gearbox-equipped new vehicles in the marketplace, you owe yourself a test drive. And I'm especially looking forward to a week with the Integra Type S next year. You know, it, it... You know, Acura, if you can hear that, just make my reservation. I'm ready. Whoa. The manufacturer suggests a retail price for the 2023 Acura Integra five-door liftback starts from $30,800 for the Integra up to $35,800 for the Integra A-Spec with technology package. Destination charges add $1,095. MSRP is tested. I test drove an Integra A-spec with technology and a six-speed manual super fun gearbox with the following extra cost option. And it was one liquid carbon metallic exterior paint. Total cost of that option, $500 total MSRP, including options and destination charges came to $37,395. I want to tell you something. This car is based on the 11th generation Honda Civic. But other than that, you would never know it. It's sophisticated. It's fun. It's put together well. It's built solid. It is way fun to drive. Probably more fun than the law allow. But you will enjoy this car. And the price is really decent for what you get. You really can't squabble on what you're getting out of cars. And it continues to amaze me. That is in this truck and SUV still crazy world. And even as we're going to EVs now. That the automakers are building gasoline engine vehicles that are world class. They're still awesome. And you know if you haven't made up your mind about EVs yet. You deserve to take this one for a drive. Because the mileage is pretty good. And you're going to enjoy the performance. I think that's a win-win. The FCC wanted more voices on the radio. So Low Power FM was born. This is the Tech Mobility show. Believe it or not, the Tech Mobility show has a website. Yep. Combined with all the other ways you can interact with us, our website is a great place to start. Learn more about the host, find us in the news, and even check out where you can hear our programs across the country on the radio. I know, right? Our website is a great place to learn more about us and our programming. Go to techmobility.show
0: for more information. Welcome to AONMeetings.com, your next video conferencing and webinar platform. Host your next virtual meeting or your paid webinar with registration and secure file sharing. Break rooms classrooms and much more with over five levels of security to know that your data is safe and secure and 100 percent browser-based keep in touch with family and friends using the newest meeting platform go to aonmeetings.com to start your free seven-day trial that's aonmeetings.com to start your seven-day free trial
1: if you're just joining us you're listening to the tech mobility show low power FM radio. Did you know there was such a thing? <laughs> Until very recently, neither did I. Turns out that the Federal Communications Commission has a special class of radio licenses called low-power FM radio to create opportunities for more voices to be heard on the radio. The LPFM stations are licensed to operate with a, with 100 watts, which allows them to reach an area with a radius of approximately three and a half miles. This is topic B. The reason why they did this is because they wanted more community voices on the radio. So let me just give you this a little bit. And this is straight from the FCC to qualify for one of these licenses. Cause you still have to be licensed. You must be a government or nonprofit educational institution, such as a private or private school or state or private university. A nonprofit organization, association, or entity with an educational purpose, such as a community group, public service or public health organization, disability service provider, or faith based organization. A government or nonprofit entity providing local public safety or transportation service, such as a volunteer fire department, local government, or state transportation authority. And finally, an Indian or Alaska Native tribe, band, nation, pueblo, village, or community that will provide non-commercial radio services. The reason why, the reason why is that because once upon a time, and still to this, really getting a full service license is expensive. It takes a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of underserved and unserved voices didn't have an opportunity to have access to the airwaves. As a result, in 2000, the FCC made low-power FM possible. And they call it a non-commercial, educational broadcast radio service. That's what they call it. Now, I'll tell you who can't get one, because they're also very clear about that, too. Let's see now. It will not, you cannot get one of these licenses if you're an individual or a commercial entity. Also, existing broadcasters, cable television system operators, newspaper publishers, and other media entities are not eligible for LPFM licenses. Why would you do such a thing? It is a way to communicate with your local neighborhood, literally neighborhood, on a whole variety of things. Um, I mean, you pretty much name it, it runs the gamut. The most important thing is nonprofit, uh, And the FCC isn't playing. There was one station that tried to, you know, run some profitable commercials. The FCC hit them with a $20,000 fine. Yeah, that's a thing. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this right now is that since... 2000, there's only been one opportunity open in 23 years for people to even apply for these licenses. You just don't decide you want one one day and hit up the FCC and say, hey, I want a low power FM license. And yeah, no, don't work like that. The FCC made an announcement recently it will open a filing window in November to take applications for new low power FMs, the first such opportunity since 2013 now this piece and this is out of uh, radio world magazine said that most of these uh, low power fm serve small communities in rural parts of the country with an approximate range of about three and a half miles the uh, low power fms range across the fm band from 88.1 to 107.9 which means they're everything schools churches nonprofits, governments or other educational institutions educational entities can file one application if you're a tribal government you can file up to two. State and local government agencies may file as many as they need within their jurisdiction for the purpose of public safety. Very often, you may have heard in case of this tune here. That's a low power FM. Particularly if you see lights, it's saying if these are lights are blinking, uh, tune your channel to sixteen ten AM. That's a low power FM giving you very local traffic information. And you may actually see that in other places around the country. Chances are that is a low-power FM. These stations often fill a niche in their community, supporters say. And the ideal is to be hyper-local with an intriguing format. One station in a small town in Texas is a non-traditional format playing B-sides from oldie singles. Its branding slogan seems appropriate. The greatest songs you've never heard. <laughs> The number of low-power FMs have fallen from its high. FCC data showed 1,989 low-power FM stations on the air at the end of June, down by 45 licenses over the past year. At one point a few years ago, there was about 2,100. So what happened? Um, The pandemic happened. A lot of these low-power FMs are run by, (laughs) if I say shoestring, that's probably being charitable. Nonprofit organizations Which are scuffling for financing. The biggest argument they have right now with the professionals, the community broadcaster veterans are saying about low power FMs is there's still some level of um, engineering that you need, technology that you need. And you can't just buy anything for signals and equipment because the FCC is very specific about what qualifies to be used in a low power FM. So you can't use like hand-me-down broadcast or commercial power equipment or even um, low broadcast power equipment from years ago because that requirement has changed. But a lot of these didn't make the pandemic because they couldn't get the financing or they couldn't get the staff and they just choked out. So here's a question. Are you in an unserved or underserved community where you feel that a commercial radio I'm sorry a community radio station would be to your advantage The FCC is taking applications in November. The folks of the community radio community suggest heavily that if you're gonna do it that you get a consultant that knows their way around the FCC and these types of licenses because they say while well, you can file it on your own, there's a lot of different things that you got to consider. And trust me, I've been through one of these FCC licenses. There's a lot of stuff. And having a consultant, particularly uh, paying for one if you can, is well worth it. One thing to know, though, the low-power FMs are not protected from interference from full-power stations and are considered secondary to existing and modified full-service FM stations. Probably the biggest risk to these community-based Low-power FM's is what the FCC did a few years ago to help the AM stations by giving them the ability to get full-service FM stations if they had an AM. And a lot of them smartly did. And no doubt, you're probably listening to me on, on one of them. But if you are a community organizer, a community organizer, excuse me, that is thinking about an underserved community you know of that would benefit you can go to FCC.gov and learn more. And in fact, let me see if I can get that for you right quick. I don't know if I've got it here, but I know you can find out. Oh, yes. FCC.gov backslash media backslash radio backslash LPFM. And I can give you some more information on whether or not this might work for your community or your, even your neighborhood. It's worth looking at because, you know, media is media. And, you know, we all deserve to have our voices heard really do so this is one opportunity that you might look at uh, as a nonprofit. a bit of deja vu for the nation's railroads when it comes to reliable service we are tech mobility show As the saying goes, it's deja vu all over again. <laughs> in this case, it's the nation's railroad. Reliable service has become an issue and the feds are making noise about stepping in. And this is topic C. Let me explain. Let me take you back to 1997 and the Union Pacific Railroad when they merged with the Southern Pacific Railroad. This is two years after. The UP merged with the Chicago Northwestern in 1995. Then they turned around and merged together with Southern Pacific. And it melded two cultures, 53,000 employees, 7,000 locomotives, 155,000 freight cars, and 36,000 miles of railroad routes covering the Western two-thirds in the United States. Guess what happened? Like so many big businesses in America they thought they could literally impose their will on their new quest, the Southern Pacific. Here's what happened. Most of freight movement in the United States, west of the Mississippi, basically came to a screeching halt across maybe almost all major railroads. The Union Pacific couldn't make it work at first. And as a result, what was happening is the federal laws, which are hours of service, started to kick in. Railroad crews that were in sightings, hit their hours of service. They can't move. And as those trains went dead, it started backing up. And they had things from Texas to the Midwest to the West Coast all backed up. Nobody was getting their stuff. It was major. Freight service collapsed, stranding Midwestern crops, snarling West Coast ports, and delaying shipments of goods from chemicals to paper. A string of fatal accidents had the federal railroad administration blaming a fundamental breakdown in safety. Guess what? The FRA showed up at the UP's headquarters in Omaha and they dictated some stuff. We got out of it because Congress actually ended up getting involved and forcing the Union Pacific actually to give up partial control and have joint control with the Burlington Northern Santa Fe out of Texas. And it still took a while to work that out. Why am I bringing this up? Because here we go again. Right now, the surface transportation board, the feds, are saying, if a railroad fails to meet minimum service standards, it could be ordered to offer competitors the ability to serve the same customers. The reason why I'm pausing is guess who's at the middle of this? You're right. The, the nation's largest railroad, largest class one, The Union Pacific. Yep. Yep. They're kind of in the middle of this. It's not just them, but it's majorly them. And I'm going to explain some other stuff that uh, the Union is having a problem with. They're calling it reciprocal switching. And it was proposed by the Service Transportation Board. And it's seen as a way to improve efficiency among major freight lines that have struggled to move goods and supplies from farms, factories, and ports particularly during COVID-19. Does this sound familiar? Now you understand the deja vu. Sounds just like what I just said happened in 97. Here we go again. The board's goal is to have the threat of increased competition motivate the railroads to boost their on-time performance. We'd rather you solve it yourself, says the government. I don't see that happening. I really don't. Believe it or not, the bipartisan five-member board Voted unanimously in favor of the proposed rule. If adopted, it would require all six of the nation's class one railroads. These are the biggest railroads in the country. What I'm talking about, the Union Pacific, the Burlington Northern, CSX, Norfolk Southern, Canadian Pacific now, since they bought the Kansas City Southern. um, All these folks would be held to this standard. They'd have to maintain uniform data on their on-time performance. When a railroad fails to meet minimum service standards, customers could file complaints and regulators would be empowered to order that it offer competitors the ability to serve the same customers. Um, I can hardly wait to see how that's going to work, particularly out here in the rural areas where you may have one railroad. That's it, which means you're going to have to give Permission to schedule in a competitor's locomotive to go get the load, come across your lines and get back to their home lines to deliver it. Good luck. The railroads already have challenges when their own equipment on their own on their own territory. And yeah, we've been here before, and yes, the Federal Railroad Administration did force the Union Pacific to give some stuff up. That was twenty-six years ago. You'd think they'd learn by now. Not necessarily now there are some um, already agreed to switching contracts and part of that is an outgrowth out of the sale of Conrail about 20 years ago. It's a whole nother story. I'm not going to get into it, but it's called Conrail uh, shared operating um, areas, places where a couple of railroads basically because you couldn't unwind it or ravel it because of the traffic patterns, they agreed to jointly operate it. So there's some of that. Yeah, but that's mainly in the Northeast and in the East, it's not out here in the Midwest and West. The board's action comes after labor and locomotive shortages led to cascading delays and trip cancellations on major freight networks, resulting in everything from delays from shipping goods from American factories to shortage of feed at dairies and poultry plants. Railroads already include similar switching arrangements in contracts with shippers voluntarily and and, uh, the head of the FRA, I'm sorry, surface transportation board said that he doubted industry claims that mandatory switching would lead to congestion or other problems he's naive but that's okay the stb considered a reciprocal switching proposal back in 2016 but the idea lay dormant for years afterward Debate about whether the STB should use its powers to compel railroads to share facilities took on new life after the administration issued an executive order in 2021 urging federal agencies to take measures to foster economic competition, especially calling on the STB to revive the switching rule. Let me add this. The federal railroad administration wrote a letter Recently, like last week, to Union Pacific, and it says basically this the compliance of rolling stock, freight cars, and locomotives on the UP network is poor, and the UP is unwilling or unable to take steps to improve the condition of their equipment. Here's for the total, here's the ratio which scared me. Specifically, the defect ratio of freight cars was just under 20%, and for locomotives was just over 70%, which meant seven out of every 10 Union Pacific locomotives in service has what they consider some sort of defect as defined by the Federal Railroad Administration. And the railroad just furloughed 94 locomotive craft employees and 44 carmen in response to lower business volumes in the Union Pacific. And the government's a little worried about that. Here's some more current statistics on the Union Pacific. Right now, the Union Pacific employs more than 45,000 people, serves 25,000 customers, and generates annual operating revenue of about $20 billion. Rolling stock includes 8,200 locomotives and more than 74,000 rail cars. And yeah, I'm looking at the letter written specifically to the head of the Union Pacific Railroad Chief Executive Officer President and Executive Vice President of Operations and I can get into some of the more hairy stuff that the letter talks about but not this time. We've come to the end of our program. Be sure to join me again right te- right here next time. You've been listening to Tech Mobility Show. The
0: Tech Mobility Show is a copywritten production of Tech Mobility Productions, Incorporated. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or any other use is prohibited without the written consent of Tech Mobility Productions, Incorporated.